Well, good morning, everybody at home and uh, here with me at Ward Church. Nice to see you today. We're in a series about worship. You know, we go to worship, we attend worship, we watch worship. But this month, we've been examining worship. What is it? How do you do it? Does it matter? And we've drawn a distinction between corporate worship and private worship. Corporate worship, again, from the Latin corpus or body, body worship, when when believers come together and worship, because biblically and historically, God's people always gather, uh, they they prioritize the gathering, and then private worship throughout your week that we can create uh, interspersed throughout our day, these worship moments of praise, corporate and private worship, and you really need both. You need this corporate worship practice. How often? Once every seven days. I really do believe God has wired us in creation for a certain rhythm of life that you do not want to violate. And so we're wired for Lord's Day worship together and then private worship every day acknowledging Him. We've said at the outset of this series and throughout that worship at its core, by definition, is not about us at all. It is God-centered. It is about God. It's not about our personal tastes or preferences. It's not even about what we get out of worship. Worship is about what we give. We come and worship to give God uh, the praise He is due, to de- declare His worthiness, worthship. Is there in the definition, he is worthy, we declare his majesty, his glory, his honor, and his praise. Worship is not about us. Having said that, we do get something out of worship, don't we? And that's what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to use Psalm 73 as our guide. This might be one of those Sundays where you'd actually want to have Psalm 73 in front of you. So if you have a Bible app on your phone, like Version, or you want to go to the sermon notes section, there's all of 73, uh, Psalm 73, because we're going to kind of work through this great psalm uh, line by line this morning. It'll be on the screen as well, if you prefer to just follow along. Um, with me. We'll try to uh, keep up on the slides as we walk, work through that uh, this morning. Psalm 73, you heard it read earlier, and it began this way. The psalmist says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." Can anybody relate to the psalmist here? Anybody here over the last year feel like you nearly lost your foothold? Does that metaphor resonate with anybody? Anybody at any point feel like my feet almost slipped? Anybody here like the psalmist ever envy the arrogant? Like you you know this person's obnoxious, but you envy them anyway? Anybody have that happen in the last seven days? Or... Has this been a slip-free, envy-free week? Did you go through the last week uh, just uh, solid, uh, sure-footed, and the thought of envying someone else never entered your mind over the last seven days? It had not occurred to you over this last week to be jealous uh, of somebody's marriage or their job or their personality? Last seven days, you never thought to envy someone's waistline, hairline, byline, or bottom line? Has that been this kind of week? Uh, Have you had the kind of week where you had a near-perfect model of godliness and you're here this morning feeling great about yourself? I did not have one of those weeks. 
I don't think a lot of us did, but I, I bet something did happen this week, even in the last 30 minutes. I bet some, uh, there's someone here who came in today pretty weighted down by everything that you see in the news. Or maybe it's not what you see in the news, but what you see in your house or in your workplace. And you heard the opening song today, Come All You Weary, Come All You Thirsty, Come to the Well That Never Runs Dry. And you heard in that song an invitation from God. Or maybe somebody came today uncertain about their future or uh, not wanting God to control their future. And then we sang that old hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And somehow in that song, that song shifted from being a song to being for you a very personal prayer of surrender. God, you be my vision, O Lord of my heart. Or maybe as Tim was leading us in a prayer for the world, you felt your heart move or you felt your wallet move and you felt God calling you to action. Sometimes you have a worship experience where God gets a hold of you. And it doesn't happen all the time, doesn't happen as often as we want, but how many of you have ever been in a worship service not expecting much, you went to worship and God ambushed you? Anybody ever have that happen in a service? Yeah? Uh, and again, as a reminder, we worship God solely because He is worthy. We do not worship because anything we get out of it. However, when we worship, something happens. When we really worship, our hearts get filled with joy. We become grateful for what we have. We get filled with hope. We have surrendered spirits. Something happens, and suddenly we, we want to avoid sin. We get humbled. We genuinely want to share about our God with people who do not yet know him. When we worship, that happens. And when we don't worship, when I withhold myself from worship, when I withhold my heart from worship, other things happen in my mind. I become anxious about tomorrow. I envy people who have what I don't. I develop an attitude of entitlement, and I think I ought to have these things. It chokes off my gratitude. I become negative and judgmental toward other people. I get discouraged easily. I get easily defeated by setbacks, right? That's, that's the non-worshiping mind. And I think in all the Bible, there's no better example of the difference between the worshiping mind and the non-worshiping mind, the worshiping life and the non-worshiping life than right here in Psalm 73. We've, we've, we've seen the start of it where the psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now let's keep going to see what this writer's life is like. He, he says in verse 4, uh, these wicked people, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. This is so irritating. He's talking about the wicked people. They're wicked, but they look fantastic. Right? And they're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. The stuff that hits a lot of people seems to miss them. They defy God, but their careers are flourishing. They don't seem to have any financial problems at all. The psalmist says, I, I do not understand this. Uh, verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. In other words, pride isn't something that they bury and hide because they're ashamed of it. They flaunt it the way some people flaunt jewelry. Pride is their necklace. Violence is their clothing. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they 
uh, threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They're arrogant. They think they've got it all figured out. They're opposed to God, but life is turning out exactly like they want. Not just that, but verse 10, therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Instead of being objects of moral judgment, which by all rights they should be, instead these are the people that others look up to. These are the people who write the books that we want to read. People find no fault with them. Uh, Worse, they openly mock God. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? In other words, these people that he's writing about say, "I, I, I don't need to be accountable to God. I don't need to do what the Bible says. The psalmist says they're wicked. They openly mock God, and God does nothing. And the psalmist goes on, if it weren't bad enough that they are doing so well, what makes it exponentially worse is that I'm trying to live my life righteously and there's no payoff. I'm in worse shape than they are. Uh, Look what he says in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. And then notice what the psalmist says about himself in the next line, verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All in vain because look at my life next to their life. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Now we don't know what the plague or punishment here that he's referring to is, but the psalmist looks at these wicked people who live in defiance of God and then the other side of the coin, he says, look, I'm, I'm trying to avoid sin, and I, I tithe, and I donate, and I give my time, and I read my Bible, and I go to worship, and what's the payoff? What good is it doing me? I, I'm, not, I'm not prospering. I'm not living in bigger homes. He lives in this kind of resentment. Does, do you ever have thoughts like this? I do. He's so wound up about this that it's actually crushing him. He still has some faith in God. He still has a sense of loyalty to his community of faith. And, and, and those are the only things keeping him going right now. He says in verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. My envy could have made me disloyal to everything that I value. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. He says it doesn't make any sense. He's hanging on to his spiritual integrity by a thread, and maybe some of you are feeling the same thing this morning. On the one hand, if he gives in to his cynicism, he will betray all that has meaning to him. On the other hand, the unfairness of it all and his unhappiness have driven him to the brink of despair. He's confused, he's discouraged, he's bitter, he's envious, he's unhappy, he's far from God, he's exhausted, and then comes the great turning point in the psalm. Here comes the hinge that will take him from death to life. Verse 17, uh, he's just walking down this path toward unhappiness and death and destruction, and verse 17 says, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Man, I, I was in this place before that, that I, I, there was not a happy bone in my body. I was discontent. I was envious. I was all cranked up until I practiced the discipline of worship, until I entered the assembly, until I, I entered a time of praise and worship. 
right? And, and then everything turned around for him 180 degrees. God gave me a sane mind in the sanctuary. Now, I'm talking about legitimate change here, not the way, you know, a lot of us sometimes, you know, bring things up a notch when we get to church. You've had those mornings where you're, you're fighting at home with your kids, you know, get in the car, we're going to church, get in the car, and you're fighting with your spouse on the way, and I can't believe it, and you pull in the church parking lot and say, hey, we're at church. Good morning to you. Praise God, right? Uh, the psalmist here is not talking about that. He's talking about a legitimate heart change before and after. And so uh, let's talk about three things that happen in worship, three things that happen for the psalmist, three things that can happen for us when we genuinely enter a time of worship. Number one, the psalmist is saying, I was given perspective. I was given perspective in worship. Verse 18, surely, God, you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The psalmist said, I realize when I enter into worship that there's more to reality than what you can see and touch and measure. At the end of the day, what matters is not my looks or my health or my bank account. At the end of the day, every one of us, every human being will stand accountable before a transcendent God who is breathtakingly powerful and utterly just. I said, somehow in worship, I, I, I got that. And the people I envied, I saw, are, are actually, they're on slippery ground. And I shouldn't envy them. I should have compassion toward them. That's why we're so committed to helping people discover God. Your friends and mine, no matter how good their lives look on Facebook, no matter how good their jobs look, a lot of them are on very slippery ground. And your friends and mine one day will stand accountable before a transcendent God who is all-powerful and utterly just. You know, we, we ask you every week to fill out uh, prayer requests. When you check in, there's a place you can do prayer requests. And we can I scroll through those, and I see some of you asking for prayers for somebody you know who doesn't know God. And uh, some of you consistently pray that this friend in my life is asking me spiritual questions, and I don't want to blow it. They're, they really seem interested. And, uh, you know, you're saying, I've got these friends who are on slippery ground right now. A lot of people you interact with are on this slippery ground. And the psalmist says, I see that. It's like, it's like my eyes were opened in worship. It's like the light bulbs came on and I finally saw these people I was so envious of are actually people I need to have compassion for. I realized how blessed I actually am. I realized that in worship. Second thing the psalmist is saying in worship in the sanctuary, I was able to diagnose the condition of my heart. This happened in the sanctuary. Psalmist writes in verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. He said, I was like self-destructive. Uh, I, I have a friend who uh, has a dog that chases cars. That's not unusual, uh, I think, but what's unusual is his dog catches the cars. This dog is so fast, and he's just obsessed with cars. He's actually knocked himself out, hitting his head against the back of cars. This dog has lost teeth 
uh, on cars. Um, he, he's got like a, a, an obsession. Uh, he's, he's got an uh, impulse control disorder. And I don't know if that dog ever says, you know, why do I do that? I get so wound up. I go chasing cars. Does it ever lead to the life I envision? No, it only leads to pain and regret. Why do I keep doing that? I don't know. Only a dog would do that, right? Only a dog would do something they know is going to lead to pain and regret. And the psalmist says, I was like a dog. I was a brute beast. I thought I was so righteous, and I could not see that I was breaking the 10th commandment not to covet. And worse than that, I was breaking the foundational, covet, the foundational covenant, the foundational commandment about loving my neighbor. I thought I was so righteous, but I was like a dumb animal, and I would just chase down bitterness and envy and hatred, and every time it leads to pain and disappointment. But it's so easy for me to go down that mental path. Does it ever lead to joy? Will it ever lead to contentment? It was when I entered the sanctuary, it was when I entered into worship that I, that I saw myself. Thank God I, I went into worship and I remembered that I didn't want to live that way. And then uh, number three, I think the psalmist is telling us, I remembered in worship that I am not alone. And here's how the psalm ends. In verse 23, yet... Yet, and yet is one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, yet I am always with you. You hold me, and notice the psalmist changes, and now he's talking directly to God. Now he's talking to God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. In other words, I don't want any gift, God, that you don't want for me. My flesh and my heart may fail. Right? I, I may never be one of those healthy, beautiful people. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Right, he's saying, I, I see it clearly now, God. You are with me and you are for me. And you can almost hear the psalmist saying, what, what if I hadn't gone into the sanctuary? What if I hadn't worshipped? What if I didn't have that perspective? What if I had neglected the assembly? I would have just gone down this path of envy and bitterness and judgment and hatred it would have been a setup for sinful behavior. I would have spoken toxic words. I would have lived blind to the reality of God. You can almost hear the psalmist saying, thank you, God, for worship. Thank you for the sanctuary. And I think there are a lot of people here who would affirm what the psalmist is saying. If we had time to pass a microphone around the room today, I think a lot of you would say, I, I, I've been there. I was going down that Psalm 73 path of envy and bitterness, and then somehow worship brought me back. I could have wallowed in self-pity, but I chose to worship God, to practice the discipline of assembly, and somehow I got ambushed by God. So let's talk about what about when I don't feel like worshiping? Because there are times, right? This applies both to corporate worship and to private worship. What if I just don't feel like it? 
uh, I don't feel like praising God because you're tired or the kids are complaining or you had a bad hair day. I'm told that's a thing. Or you're in an argument with your spouse and your spouse says, you are just like your mother and you're not suddenly inspired to say, thank you, Jesus. I just feel like praising right now. And sometimes, here's the truth about me, sometimes I have to argue myself into praise. Sometimes it's just a discipline that I start and practice. Here's one of the Apostle Paul's most staggering statements, such such wisdom from the Apostle Paul uh, in his letter to the church at Corinth. He says this uh, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we, and read the rest of it with me, we what? Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul understands when the train of our thoughts and our emotions are going this way, uh, our behavior, our actions usually follow that train. Now, there are times out of sheer willpower, we can break our actions away from our thoughts and feelings. We can do that as an act of sure will. But most of the time, where our thoughts and feelings go, our actions will follow. And Paul says, therefore, direct your thoughts. Grab those thoughts captive and you can steer that train. This is why daily worship is so important that we're praising God. We can actually direct our thoughts. In the biblical examples, worship comes first and then transformation. The psalmist went into the sanctuary even though he didn't feel like it. Even though his heart was was full of anger and envy, he went into worship and then everything turned around for him. The New Testament has a story of Paul and Silas uh, who worshiped God in prison. They were put in prison and they worshiped right there. And uh, it says the other prisoners started singing along, which is kind of a cool image. Uh, On the other hand, you know, they had no place else to go. And so they chimed right in at that time. And then if you know the story, there's an earthquake and the walls fall down and they're freed from prison. But notice they worshiped God before the earthquake. They worshiped God before they were set free. They worship God when it seemed like there wasn't much to give thanks for. Worship comes first. Worship was and always is, at least in part, a spiritual discipline. It's an act of faith. A great deal is up to you. So this coming week, you are going to be tempted like the psalmist. And you can live in envy and discouragement and resentment. Or you can take every thought captive And you can enter the sanctuary of the church, of your car, of your house. You can enter worship, and you can have God turn your whole world upside down. Would you stand and pray with me? Well, God, we are uh, are wired for worship, and yet there are endless distractions around us and within us. Forgive us the times we have ignored you or have lived indifferent or ungrateful. May our hearts find their focus and fulfillment in you. As we live according to the rhythm of life you have created for us, grant us perspective. Grant us joy. Grant us life. God, your mercy never fails. We say along with the psalmist, all of our days 
you have held our hands. We are held by your hands. And so we will sing of the goodness of God. We offer this as an act of faith in Jesus' name. Amen.